This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. As the U.S. continues to move into the 21st century, we face a diverse array of traditional and asymmetrical threats to our security. Seemingly isolated events can have serious consequences thousands of miles away. The U.S. border is a nexus to a continuum of activities that impact our national security and our prosperity. Having a safe and secure border is critical. But so is safeguarding our economy by enabling lawful trade and travel. This balance between law enforcement and enhancing economic competitiveness requires a comprehensive understanding of all border threats and potential consequences. The U.S. Customs and Border Protection, CBP, plays a critical role in doing just that. What are CBP's key strategic priorities? What is CBP doing to be more efficient and effective in meeting its mission? And how is CBP pursuing innovative security strategies? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Kevin McAleenan, Deputy Commissioner of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Kevin, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. Great to be back. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Don Finhagen. Don, welcome. Thank you. Kevin, would you provide us an overview of the history and evolving mission of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, CBP, uh, when was it created, and how has its mission evolved to date? Absolutely. Uh, U.S. Customs and Border Protection was created with the stand-up of the Department of Homeland Security on March 1, 2003. Uh, and it's actually an idea that's quite a bit older. Uh, seven times uh, since the Woodrow Wilson administration, various Blue Ribbon commissions and panels of experts were brought together and, and talked about the need to unify the agencies responsible for, for border security and, and different aspects of, of border security, the immigration function, customs function, uh, agriculture. Coast Guard was often uh, joined in. Uh, and, and most recently, that came through in the, the Hart-Rudman Commission, uh, which was the national security threats for the 21st century, uh, which was written uh, and fairly presciently uh, right before 9-11, predicted significant threats and recommended as one of the ideas uh, to be better prepared uh, to have a unified border security component. So, so that idea was what was behind uh, the creation of U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Uh, and what CBP uh, brings together is those uh, inspection and interdiction functions that happen at the border uh, to, and, and an extended border to help secure uh, the flow of people and goods uh, into the United States and to help secure our border between ports of entry. Uh, so the, the immigration and customs inspection functions, the agriculture inspection functions to ensure uh, pests and diseases don't make it in uh, to our economy, uh, and, and very prominently, obviously, the role of patrolling between ports 
of entry on our land borders and in our, our coastal uh, waterways, the customs waterways, a historical mission that, that goes back to the founding and, and Alexander Hamilton uh, commissioning the, the Revenue Cutter Service. So uh, it's, it's quite, it's quite a, a long history. Uh, in terms of the mission, you know, it, it's evolved along with the, the threats that, that we face in, in the modern world, as well as with the organization, uh, organizational improvements of having a unified approach to border security. Uh, so, so obviously, in a post-9-11 environment, we were created uh, to address a, a new and global uh, terrorist threat, and that remains our priority mission today, uh, preventing terrorists and terrorist weapons from entering the country. Uh, but we've also seen the emergence of very uh, strong and connected transnational criminal organizations, which uh, are, are increasingly uh, open to different business lines, uh, wh- whether it's uh, moving narcotics, which is the traditional drug cartel, uh, uh, smuggling of people, trade-based based money laundering, a whole set of, of threats that willing to make money in, in the black and gray markets across uh, multiple uh, potential industries. Uh, so our, our mission has had to evolve to, to account for that. Uh, and then just the tremendous growth uh, that, that globalization has brought, uh, both in travel and trade. Uh, our, our missions had to evolve to be much more efficient. Uh, we, we have to employ risk management approaches to keep up uh, with that vast flow. Uh, and we also have to make sure that, that we're, we continue to enforce uh, the trade and trade laws, uh, things like intellectual property rights, uh, things like uh, import safety laws uh, of products that could present a danger uh, to consumers. Uh, all of those those issues have become more complex uh, since our creation uh, uh, just 13 years ago. Uh, so it, it's it's a it's a large agency uh, with a diverse and, and and evolving mission. Yeah, and I want to get right into it because you kind of hint at it a little bit with when you um, uh, outline the mission and, and its uh, evolution. Is what's the scale of operation within the organization? And what I'm trying to get at is how is it specifically organized? The size of its budget, the number of folks that work with work for you, and um, the geographical footprint. Well, the the scale is global. Uh, obviously, we're concentrated in the in the continental United States, but we, we have a presence in all fifty states, and in forty countries around the world, in, in seventy locations. Uh, Sixty thousand uh, people, uh, the largest law enforcement agency in the United States. Uh, over 45,000 uh, uniformed armed personnel uh, carrying out uh, different functions, which I'll, I'll describe. $13 billion plus budget, uh, one of the largest uh, budgets in the civilian uh, federal government uh, be, because of that that personnel commitment and the technology we need to, to utilize uh, to carry out our multifaceted mission. Uh, but we're structured around four main operational components. The Office of Field Operations uh, oversees our personnel at ports of entry uh, around the United States and at preclearance uh, locations uh, in six countries uh, around the world. Uh, that's about 28,000 folks. And these are our, our Customs and Border Protection officers, as well as our agriculture specialists and our trade specialists that, that deal with uh, the transactional processing of, of trade entering the country uh, and, and some some teams to support them. We then have the Office of, of Border Patrol, the U.S. Border Patrol, uh, which patrols the, the land border between ports of entry, the, both uh, the Canadian and Mexican border as well, uh, as working closely with our air marine operations, uh, which is uh, pretty interesting. We have the the largest civilian air force in the world with with over 200 aircraft and uh, as well as 250 uh, boats uh, that patrol the coastal waters and riverine environments, uh, both on the, on the northern and southern border. Uh, so those are, those are the three uniformed armed uh, elements: uh, field operations, border patrol, and air and marine. 
and then our, we have our Office of, of International Trade, uh, which which is also operational in the sense that it's responsible for the enforcement of trade laws and the facilitation uh, of, of $4 trillion in trade crossing our border, uh, but both imports uh, over, over $2 trillion in imports and, and almost, uh, maybe this year we'll get close, at $2 trillion in exports to make sure that that is, is, is safe, lawful, and secure. Uh, so, very large scope of the organization, and, and we ha- also, of course, to support that, have a have a tremendous information technology uh, section that that uh, provides advanced analytics capabilities that that manages vast amounts of data that that go along with uh, trade and travelers and, and and the ability to sort them for risk, uh, as well as the, the normal government management sections of human resources and finances and all the critical things that make the mission work. Uh, so it, it's a it's a pretty broad organization, uh, but it's it's really our, our whole effort is focused around those four main operational components. I'm trying to get a sense, and I don't know if folks realize this. Could you give us a sense of how many miles of border are you covering? Uh, what, what, how many number of ports and how many people and items are we talking pass by in a given moment? We have 330 official ports of entry, uh, and it, as well as 15 preclearance locations in, in the six countries, uh, and a number of user fee airports and, and other facilities that w- that we oversee, bonded warehouses and, and foreign trade zones. Uh, so a number of operational areas that that deal with the flow of people and, and, and goods. That flow, right, this year is expected to be over 365 million uh, in terms of border crossers. That's about 120 million international air arrivals, and that's an area that, that's growing exponentially. Over 200 million land border crossings, both at the Canadian and Mexican border, very active uh, areas for, for both daily and, and uh, seasonal crossing, as well as our, our seaports. Uh, you know, almost 20,000 cruise passengers a year, as well as all the, the cargo vessels and the crews and, and uh, captains that, that uh, come in on, on those vessels, as well as pleasure boats. So, you know, almost 400 million people uh, that, that, we, that we deal with just coming in. Uh, we have responsibilities on, on the outbound as well that we, that we can discuss. Uh, for, for the Office of Border Patrol, the U.S. Border Patrol, we, we've been apprehending the last five years between 300 and 500,000 people annually crossing between our ports of entry. Uh, so those are, those are really significant numbers on a daily basis being uh, interdicted between ports of entry, you know, crossing in, in illicit areas. Uh, so so that's, that's a high-volume operation, uh, both uh, in the, the legal flows as well as the, uh, the folks crossing uh, between ports of entry, although those numbers are down significantly uh, from the beginning of this century. Hey, so can you talk to your uh, specific responsibilities and duties as the deputy commissioner of CBP? How do you support the overall mission of the Department of Homeland Security? Sure. I see it as really three essential roles. First, I'm the the chief operating officer uh, for U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Uh, I have the responsibility of overseeing our options, of of carrying out uh, the the guidance from our commissioner uh, and and making that happen operationally. So that's first and and, and foremost. I also, in in that role, have a a significant responsibility on the administrative side. How do we do our our planning, our our programming, our budgeting, and and our accountability mechanisms and make sure that all of our enterprise services, our mission support functions, are aligned in supporting those, those operational missions. Uh, and then third, you mentioned the, the overall mission of the Department of Homeland Security. As the senior career official coming up in the organization, having time overseeing and working with each of our different diverse components, I have a significant responsibility in, in providing advice uh, and recommendations, uh, both policy and operational, to the secretary and deputy secretary and, and the, the various oversight offices of the Department of Homeland Security. So, Kevin, what are your top, say, three management challenges or the top challenges you face, and how have you sought to address those challenges? 
So I, I think I got to to take on the challenges at the both at the assistant commissioner level and now at the agency wide level as deputy commissioner, uh, right at the time that federal budgets were becoming greatly constrained. The era where uh, homeland security. Uh, was 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 an area that that had significant funding growth every year was was curtailed uh, uh, really in the 2011 2012 timeframe and with sequestration became a, a significant challenge in in terms of uh, budget constraints. So I, I think number one is how to accomplish an increasing mission uh, with that growth in, in trade and travel that complexity of how uh, both both terrorist adversaries and transnational criminal organizations are trying to uh, exploit our, our border during a time of of fewer resources to to accomplish that. So so I think that's that's challenge one and we can you know talk about different aspects of that. Challenge two has been as the economy has improved, uh, the ability to hire, recruit, hire, and retain uh, the, the kind of professionals we need uh, to, to take on this complex mission in areas of the country that are, that are often remote without a, a lot of infrastructure, uh, the, the hiring process uh, has been very challenging as well. Uh, how do we find people that have very clean backgrounds that, that are trusted with this huge responsibility to determine who can be allowed in the country, to, to determine what goods are allowed in, to patrol remote areas of the border, often uh, alone. You know, we really have to have a high trust and confidence in those kind of uh, individuals. How do we find enough of them to work all over our vast nation and, and to take on some of these international opportunities we have, you know, even as, as there are lots of competitive uh, agencies and, and certainly the private sector uh, is offering a lot of interesting uh, work in, in this increasing era of globalization. So uh, that, that's been probably the second uh, most significant challenge. Uh, and then third, and our Commissioner Gil Kurlikowski, uh really honed in on this from the first day of his tenure, uh, is, is this environment we face in law enforcement where there's an appropriate call for increasing in integrity and transparency and accountability in, in the process of law enforcement. Uh, so how do we uh, make sure that we have the right training, the right policies, the right equipment in place, not only to protect our personnel, uh, but to make sure they can carry out their duties in, in the, the, the least impactful way possible on a, a mostly lawful public. Over 99% of the travelers we encounter are fully compliant with, with all laws. How do we make sure they're prepared for those rare situations where they need to take action when, when the vast majority of the folks they're, they're encountering are, are, are compliant? And then how do we tell the public what's happened? Uh, how do we talk about it swiftly and as openly and accurately as possible when there is an incident where force had to be used, for instance, while uh, taking down a, a drug smuggling operation across the border? Uh, that, that's been a real challenge in, 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 the, in the current environment uh, with, with the expectations of the American people, the appropriate expectations uh, of accountability from their law enforcement uh, protectors. So I think we're really lucky to have you sitting in the role you're in. You bring a tremendous amount of um, expertise and experience from being around CBP for a long time, but what, what's really surprised you the most since taking your current role? Coming into the role, I, I had served in senior positions. I've had the opportunity to be at the leadership table, uh, unfortunately, on the same floor in the same building <laughs> uh, for, for 11 of the last 15 years. Uh, so I, I, I've seen a number of different leaders in that role. I've seen different challenges they, they confronted. Uh, so I, I, I think... I was prepared in terms of the number and types of, of, of things uh, I would face. I think the requirements to really look beyond the, the current 
challenge, the current month, the current budget year, and to try to plan strategically. That's much, at the deputies level, that becomes much more imperative, uh, is, is what are we going to be facing in three to four years from now? Uh, and and how, do, how do I help position the agency with the commissioner's guidance uh, to have the resources we need, the innovative technologies we need, and the personnel we need for that environment? I, I think that surprised me is, is how urgent that feels. It, you know, when you're running an operation, you're very connected with the day-to-day, the, the incidents happening out there on the border, responding to them, uh, preparing for the, for the next crisis, addressing it. Uh, but, it but the chief operating officer level, you really want to be thinking into the future. And, and it's, it's the thing that I think surprised me the most is how quickly that future comes, <laughs> that growth. Uh, you know, when you're, when you're sitting uh, in 2009 at 89 million international air arrivals, and, and we're probably going to finish this fiscal year 16 at 120 million, when, when you're annualizing over 5% uh, growth a year, 35 percent in seven years, you know, it, it, the future comes quickly. <laughs> so uh, I, I think that that imperative uh, to, to really be focused on that that horizon uh, has been, uh, you know, a challenge and an opportunity in the new role. It's great that you mentioned that because one of the funny things about it, and my next question is about effective leadership, is um, uh, Admiral Allen, Thad Allen, used to talk about the tyranny of the present, mm-hmm. and it seems like folks get stuck here in D.C. or when you're when you're running anything that's huge. You have you get stuck in the present. You think that's you know you need to make the you need to pay the bills, but you need to think about the future as well. And, and that gets to the next question around what makes an effective leader, Kevin. And perhaps you could illustrate for us how you have been an effective leader and who has influenced your leadership style. So I'll, I'll come up with a couple of of examples in, for for this one because I, I think it's it's maybe too hard to just pick one. Our first commissioner, uh, Commissioner Robert Bonner. I think the lesson that he conveyed w- with with crystal clarity was that, that you need to make sure you have strategic priorities and that you communicate them to your team. At that time, obviously, uh, he started as the U.S. Customs Service Commissioner uh, a few weeks after 9-11. September 21st, he was confirmed. He, he very clearly saw we needed to, to turn this venerable agency to a new priority mission, uh, preventing terrorists and terrorist weapons from entering the country. Within a year, every officer in the field could cite that that was what we were about, and that was our priority mission. And that cascaded through our resourcing. It cascaded through our IT priorities uh, and throughout the organization in an impactful and, and meaningful way. So I, I think I think an effective leader has to set very clear strategic priorities and, and tell the organization what the, what they're intended to do uh, and, and how to how to structure uh, accordingly. Uh, so so that's one. Recently, uh, in, in in watching our secretary Jay Johnson. Uh, in his role, I've learned a lot about the need for a real leader to own the toughest issues personally. Um, you know, there are certain things that can't be delegated. You've heard President Obama talk about if it gets to my desk, it's obviously it's a tough, it's a tough one, it's a tough challenge. Uh, and so, you know, watching uh, Secretary Johnson work on the challenges regarding uh, immigration enforcement and, and immigration law and policy and, and really take personal ownership of, of those decisions as, as tough as they are, as often as they disappoint different sections of our political environment. Uh, he, he does it with principle. He does it with attending to the legal requirements and responsibilities of his office. Uh, and He does it with great care to hear from the experts. I think that watching him own those issues uh, and be responsible uh, to, to fully understand all the parameters as he makes critical decisions uh, has been a tremendous uh, leadership lesson. 
and and I think most directly and recently uh, from from Commissioner Kurlikowski, who's got 42 years of law enforcement experience. He's led uh, police departments in three three U.S. cities. Uh, he's been he's been a beat cop. Uh, he, he was in the military before that. He's got a tremendous amount of experience he brings to the role. Um, watching him manage me uh, and our senior operators with just the right formula uh, of guidance, uh, but also freedom and, and trust uh, has been really instructive for me. Uh, I, I tend to be pretty hands-on, especially when it comes to some of our operational issues. Uh, but I've actually tried to take a page from his book because we have tremendous operational leaders. Uh, our, our executive assistant commissioner level for field operations or, or the chief of the border patrol. Uh, these are tremendous, highly experienced uh, executives. Uh, and, and letting go a little bit of that operational detail and, and giving them that, that limited guidance but a lot of trust, uh, I, I think is something I've I've taken from from my boss, uh, Gil Kurlikowski. So, I, I think those are three examples of of what I think it takes to be an effective leader that that I've, I've taken from uh, mentors and role models that I've been very fortunate to have in government service. What is CBP's vision and strategy 2020? We will ask Kevin McAlina, Deputy Commissioner of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, when a conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. What can government executives learn from the GAO's high-risk list? What have agencies done over the years to get their programs off the list? How can programs stay off the list in the first place? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Dr. Don Kettle, author of the IBM Center Report, Managing Risk, Improving Results, Lessons for Improving Government Management from GAO's High-Risk List. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Kevin McAlina, Deputy Commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Also joining my conversation from IBM is Don Penhagen. So, Kevin, um, you know, I, I want to talk to you about the uh, strategic, uh, the, the vision and strategy 2020. Could you tell us a little bit more about that, outline the key uh, strategic priorities for CBP, and just uh, give us a sense of, of where you're going? I'm happy to do that. Our, our, the vision for 2020 highlights three of those areas with, with, with some clarity. Uh, our, our first and foremost, our priority mission, the reason we were founded, our, our counterterrorism efforts, and that nexus that I talked about with transnational criminal organizations. Secondly, uh, advancing comprehensive border security. Uh, our role at the border, uh, being the interdictor in, in trying to prevent uh, dangerous people and things from entering the country, both both at and between our ports of entry. Uh, how do we do it better? How do we become more effective? Uh, and also, how do we measure it and convey it uh, effectively so that we can enable and support uh, good policy and, and good law uh, around uh, our, our border security mission? 
Uh, and then third, uh, you know, the, the, how do we foster and support uh, that increasing trade and travel that's so critical uh, to our economy? Many people don't realize that, that travel exports, uh, the, the, the money that people bring uh, from abroad to spend in the U.S. is, is actually the largest component of our export economy. And so we, we have taken on as a, as a real priority mission the, the uh, role to facilitate that and, and to try to create a, a world-class experience for an arriving traveler so that they want to come to the U.S. again. Uh, it, we, we do see that as our responsibility. So, so those three broad mission areas uh, I, I think have been really central to a lot of the, the national focus, whether it's a security focus uh, or a trade and economy focus. Uh, and, and that we've had a real critical role uh, in pursuing those and in supporting our interagency partners, whether it's the FBI and the Intelligence Committee or DOD uh, on the counterterrorism mission, uh, whether it's the Department of Commerce or the Treasury on some of our trade work, whether it's the Department of Transportation on travel. We, we, we have a real key role as a partner uh, uh, across many of these mission sets uh, as well. So the vision and strategy for 2020 really ensconced those as the this is what we do. Yeah. These are the things we do as an agency. Uh, the second thing that the vision and strategy does is it talks about how we do it. Um, and and I, I talked a little bit about the need for integrity throughout our processes uh, and, and the need for greater transparency and accountability that we can communicate. Uh, that, that's a principle that, that's core uh, to our, our strategy. Uh, and then the, the need to have deepening integration uh, both between CBP functions and between CBP and our interagency partners. Uh, and then thirdly, the, the, the imperative to innovate. If your resources are not going to increase and your mission is going to grow, you're either going to fail or you need to innovate to keep up. Uh, and that principle of innovation uh, is, is also uh, highlighted in, in our strategy. And it, I think it's reflected in a number of things that we're doing uh, programmatically and, and operationally as well. Uh, so it, it creates a great foundation for us. It, it becomes uh, the... the uh, the navigation point for our, our resourcing uh, planning process, which uh, for your audience, they'll be interested in it. We, we've been uh, really trying to drive our, our, our policy and planning, our, the intelligence that feeds it, uh, and, and then our decision-making on how do we spend that finite set of resources? How do we allocate it in the most effective way possible to accomplish our missions? And then how do we measure it? Trying to drive each set of that the, that process in a much more integrated fashion. Uh, we call it planning, programming, budgeting, and accountability. Uh, so uh, it's been a really important document for us. We use it uh, and refer to it routinely. Uh, and it's currently informing our, our fiscal year 17 priorities and, and, and how we plan uh, for next year. Uh, so, Kevin, as a follow-up, what are some of the most uh, serious threats and critical trends that shape and inform CBP strategy? You can't answer this question without without starting with the situation we see in Syria and Iraq uh, and, and the rise of uh, the Islamic State in, in, in Iraq and the Levant. And really the, the challenge that that poses strategically, not only to the United States, but to, to our allies in Europe, 
to our friends around the world as, as so many of their citizens have gone to the conflict zone uh, to participate with ISIS and other groups and potentially could return. And, and so from a U.S. Customs and Border Protection perspective, where our chief responsibility is to prevent those threats from coming to the United States, that manifests itself in an, on an international aircraft. Uh, we've seen that there's a continued focus on commercial aviation as that spectacular attack vector. And as a border agency, we, we have a lot of information on travelers, and we're able to apply it now before people board an aircraft to depart for the United States in conjunction with our partners at the Transportation Security Administration. So we're able to use that information to make decisions on individuals that might present a risk before they board and make decisions and let carriers know that we don't think they should be boarding those aircraft today. And, and we do that thousands of times a year, dozens of times a day, uh, to, to significant impact. So that's the, the number one threat and our major focus in, in so many ways. It's also, I think, this, the major story globally is, is the increasing phenomena of irregular migration. Uh, so on our U.S. southern border, the, the, the story is that, that it's actually down significantly, <laughs> especially for Mexico with the improvement in the Mexican economy, the changes in, in, in the Mexican birth rate dropping dramatically. We don't have the same volume of flow, uh, but we are getting people from further away more often. Uh, the Northern Triangle, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, we've seen uh, children and families uh, coming in large numbers uh, due to the uh, situations in, in their, their home countries. We've seen people from the Eastern Hemisphere uh, taking a land border route uh, through uh, uh, South and Central America to the U.S. border. Uh, so this is, this is similar uh, in a much smaller degree to what the Europeans are facing uh, from uh, both the Middle East and Afghanistan as well as, as Africa. Uh, migration flows through Turkey and Greece as well as through Italy. Uh, so uh, all these present challenges. Uh, you know, how, how you want to make sure you sort out anyone who might present a threat in a larger irregular migration flow, uh, but you also need to fulfill our humanitarian responsibilities of, of treating folks that, that are appropriately refugees or, or asylum seekers with great humanitarian care in the process. Uh, so those, I think, are the most critical trends, uh, to, to use your term, that, that we're, we're seeing. Uh, and then the third is, is the, the growth of, of trade at the same time there's an expectation for more significant uh, enforcement, right? So there's an overcapacity in steel production in China as their infrastructure building uh, slows. Um, how do we prevent that from, from swamping U.S. markets and, and, and U.S. producers? Uh, you see that in several other key commodities as well. And, and it, we've gotten a very clear signal from the Congress uh, with the, the trade facilitation and Trade Enforcement Act, uh, which directs us to, to take greater efforts even than we already are in this area. Going back to those three core mission areas, which I, I described in our, our vision for 2020, uh, th those, those are both core of what we do and some of which we've done since 1789, uh, but, but also responsive to increasing challenges and, and, and trends globally. Well, to, to maintain this continuous understanding of the dynamic and asymmetric uh, global threat environment, you must, you must enhance your ability to collect, analyze, and appropriately share the intelligence and information across the enterprise. Would you tell us a little bit more about how CBP law enforcement intelligence enterprise specifically um, 
drives the essential outcomes that it needs to deliver. Absolutely. So a couple aspects to this. Uh, I'll start on the the, the flow of, of lawful travelers and, and goods. You know, given our, our role at the border, uh, our role to, to process that vast flow of travel and trade, uh, we are in a position to to collect appropriately significant amounts of information uh, from, from air carriers, from uh, cargo vessels, uh, from different participants in the supply chain. Uh, so we have a really unique insight into the, the global travel cycle and the global supply chain. It, it's very difficult uh, to, to move things around the world without somehow interacting with the U.S. economy. Uh, we're, we're, we're still such a significant player uh, that, that gives us a lot of access and insight uh, to data. And with the development of, of increasingly capable analytical tools, we're able to sort that uh, to, to accomplish our age-old mission of, of risk management in, in a much more uh, effective uh, fashion to, to target our, our most significant threats. Uh, so CBP brings a ton of information to the table uh, from the from the beginning on on uh, on an intelligence or an information perspective. Uh, additionally, in our encounters with people that are that are trying to exploit our border for illicit purposes. The information from those arrests, uh, the, the people crossing, what they brought with them, who they were connected to, how many times we've seen them, their biometrics, but also pr- provide a, a, a rich data source. Uh, and what we're experiencing is the, the power of combining these data, these different data sources that are intrinsic to our border security mission and our border regulatory missions uh, with with information from other agencies and intelligence, uh, high, you know, classified intelligence. The, the power of that combination gives us a much better understanding, enables us to move beyond a sort of transactional process where we're looking at each individual traveler as an issue of first impression to a counter network approach uh, where we're looking for the the organizations and the tendrils of uh, illicit groups that are that are trying to exploit our border processes that helps us focus on the the, the real threats and it helps us limit the impact to the vast majority of, of people that are that are lawful that are crossing so uh, we, we bring a lot to that enterprise and and we've demonstrated that our data can be valuable to other agencies and their data uh, is hugely important when it's fused with our information. So the, the challenge is how to do that both from an IT management perspective. Uh, you know, we often uh, surprise our, our information technology partners and our interagency partners with just the vast amount of data we have and, and some, of the, some of its complexity, uh, but, but also to make sure we, we do that in a way that attends assiduously to our, our privacy responsibilities, our compliance, uh, and civil rights and civil liberties. Uh, so uh, we, we've really improved uh, our ability to, to take account of, of privacy impact from the beginning of a program. Uh, that, that's a commitment we've made, uh, that, that we think about that as at every stage of development of how we use information. Uh, because, you know, if you're not uh, committing uh, to that aspect of it, then, then the, even the, the mission impact isn't worth it. Uh, so, so that's a key part of, of how we're approaching these problems. I would be remiss if I didn't mention a whole separate side of, of, of intelligence, which would be more on the geospatial or physical side from our, from our, uh, what the military would call intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance (ISR) capabilities. Uh, the, the investments in border security over the last two administrations have given us 
much more visibility and situational awareness on the border, uh, whether it's camera towers or ground sensors, uh, our, our aviation uh, assets, the helicopters, fixed wings, and, and the type of electro-optical and infrared capabilities that they bring uh, to the table uh, combined with uh, our, our very high-level assets, our uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, uh, and, and their ability to, to be time on station uh, above and uh, an area of the border. Uh, all of that has vastly increased uh, our, our situational awareness, and we've, we've taken concerted efforts to bring that picture together so we get a real sense of, of what's coming at us on our land border and our, our coastal and maritime waters, uh, as well as in the, uh, the, the aviation environment. Um, I guess, is there one, one part of that picture that's really come together for you recently that you know, a specific technology, something that's really become a game changer for you in that, that environment. I do think that learning how to use our unmanned aerial vehicles and, and the kind of capability they can provide with with uh, advanced sensors uh, gives us a much broader view of, of the border than uh, even a, a modern helicopter with a good uh, electro-optical camera or infrared radar can. Uh, and, and that's given us uh, new opportunities to understand what's happening in an area of the border, uh, new opportunities to, f- to follow uh, and address a, s- a situation of a cross-border smuggling attempt from further away without uh, alerting uh, the, the criminals involved so that we can, we can follow them to, to where they're going and, and have a broader impact on, again, that network that's involved. It's not just those two people crossing with, with a drug load. It's who are they doing it for and, and where are they delivering it to uh, and combining that with our, our investigative partners. The global supply chain is critical to our way of life. It relies upon a complex network and that presents a lot of unique risks. Obviously, CBP deals with one of the biggest supply chains in the, the federal government, I would say. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on CBP's work to strengthen the security of the global supply chain, identify some of your key challenges in the area, maybe some partners you're working with? Um, what, what do you think you can tell us about CBP's layered approach to securing the global supply chain? I'd be happy to. And, and frankly, this is one of the, the areas that we moved most aggressively in right after 9-11, uh, in, the, in the immediate uh, years, with the concern over the potential of uh, a terrorist group to exploit the, the global supply chain to introduce a, a weapon or, or something uh, dangerous or illicit uh, through the supply chain. Uh, and, and really, that's, that's founded on and really another core principle of CBP, and that's, that's public-private partnerships. Uh, we cannot do our job effectively without close engagement uh, with industry uh, and the key players in the global supply chain, from, from the major U.S. importers to the foreign manufacturers and everyone in between, whether it's a major express consignment operator like a FedEx or a UPS, down to uh, a, a freight forwarder that, that specializes in a, in a unique commodity and, and, and targeted audience. Uh, we want to be able to engage all of those elements to know who they are, to know how they interact, uh, so that we have a, a comprehensive view of, of the security of the supply chain. Uh, so that partnership is manifested uh, in a, a program called the Customs Trade Partnership Against Terrorism. Uh, it's over a decade old. It's got 10,000 members. Over 50% of import volume uh, is now covered by CTPAT. It's extensive effort where we have supply chain security specialists, people that we've trained and developed and cultivated 
who are experts in how goods move around the globe, go work with a company on their supply chain, go visit their their manufacturer's facilities, uh, look at each entity that's that's a player in their supply chain from their from their ocean carrier uh, to their to their freight forwarder uh, to make sure those elements are secure as possible. That, that CT pad and, and working together uh, to secure that supply chain because it's in the in the company's interest as well. No no major U.S. importer wants to to be the one that brought in a, a dangerous uh, commodity into the U.S. Uh, second is that that data and information side and in, in collecting it more uh, efficiently earlier in the process uh, and analyzing it more effectively. A unfolding uh, impressive development I would offer uh, across government IT is, is U.S. Customs and Border Protection implementation of the single window concept uh, in partnership with a number of our other departments and agencies, 47 of whom have a role in, in receiving information from industries moving uh, goods across the border. Uh, and with the support of a presidential executive order, we are delivering this year and, and now have well over 99% of all uh, international trade coming into the country. The data surrounding that is being submitted through a single window to the entire U.S. government. Uh, so if it, say it's a, a pharmaceutical that's regulated by the FDA. Instead of U.S. Customs and Border Protection asking for that information once, FDA asking for it a separate time, a company submitting the data twice, it being given different responses on what to do with their cargo, it's now coming through a single window and, and an integrated response uh, back to that player in the trade uh, environment. So we think that's a huge advance. It's, it's been extraordinarily complex, many years in development. Uh, we're delivering it this year on, on schedule with the president's executive order. And, and are very proud of the partnership that's developed that. So with that information, how do we analyze it? How do we look for any threats from a security, a contraband, to a trade enforcement threat, as I described earlier? Uh, that's, that's critical to the supply chain. Uh, and then how do we look at different submitters of information, whether their information lines up? How do you validate that trust? And I think this is an area where there's some really interesting developments uh, out in Silicon Valley and in the private sector and in the banking industry around uh, blockchains and, and, and how do you understand that the data is consistent across multiple parties in a non-trusted network. Uh, so we're very interested in how those could apply to trade data and strengthen our single window or maybe enable us to share single windows with other with other governments. Uh, that's the next step. Yeah, I don't think folks realize you, you, CBP has such a unique role. It is both an enabler and a regulator of trade. So it's it's very it's fascinating that you're you're looking at this this way. It's it's great. So I think we're just beginning to realize the the power of that unique role. And I, I say, and first of all, our first commissioner saw it right away with the creation of, of the Customs Trade Partnership against terrorism. I didn't even mention our foreign deployments and our partnerships with foreign governments. Uh, but we're, we're now applying a public-private partnership approach across so many of our of our mission areas. Uh, with the the support of Congress, we've developed a reimbursable services agreement concept. If we can add value to a private sector or state and local government entity, uh, and they, they think there's an economic benefit, a return on investment uh, for paying for additional CBP services, we now have a legal mechanism to accept that and enter into agreements. We have several dozen now, and we have tremendous feedback from major airport authorities and, and land border consortiums that have, that have come together 
uh, to, to work with us uh, so we can provide better service to their, their traveling public or to their trading public. Uh, so that's one method. Uh, trying to keep up with the pace of technology development. I, I've heard you mentioned Commandant Allen. I've heard him describe it as a, a stern chase right. with a gap widening. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, the, the public has such uh, growing expectations. If they can use their iPhone uh, to, to do, you know, to, to order an Uber, to do all these things so conveniently, why can't government get their act together and, and keep up? So uh, understanding that complexity, we're, we're trying to, to create opportunities for the, the, the speed of business as opposed to the speed of government. Uh, I think the best example of that is our automated passport control kiosks. Uh, we went from a, a situation where in just three years ago, only 3% of travelers would interact with technology before encountering a CBP officer, just our global entry members at that point. By the way, global entry is quadrupled in the time. Um, yeah, it's great. Thank you. I'll tell uh, John Wagner, the, the 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 spearheader of that program, that you like it. Uh, but we've gone from three percent to now seventy five percent of air travelers are interacting with technology first. That saves ninety minutes to ninety seconds to two minutes per traveler. And it has enabled us to decrease wait times three years in a row despite 5% plus growth a year. Um, and, and we did it because we let the private sector put the technology that they wanted in their terminal uh, in, and we just told them the data that we needed to, to process their travelers more effectively. So that's the kind of public-private partnership we're working towards. We, we see that we have that opportunity uh, and role as, as both uh, a regulator and a, and a partner and a facilitator uh, that that can we can continue to expand uh, preclearance and, and our our opening to the to airports around the world that might want to preclear travelers before they travel to the U.S. much more efficient way to travel instead of taking a transatlantic flight and then getting in, in a line with 350 people unloading from a triple seven or. 500 from an A380. Uh, not ideal, unless you're a global entry member. Yeah, uh, but but if if you if you're pre-cleared, you've done it at the natural pace of your arrival at a foreign airport or with a group of 20 or 30 people that are transiting from your prior flight. Uh, so it's just a much more efficient way, and it's much more secure because uh, it enables us to to see people before they sort of board. expand out. Absolutely. Security, yeah, push the borders out. What is CBP doing to be more efficient and effective in meeting its mission? We will ask Kevin McAleenan, Deputy Commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security, to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine. And with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. What can government executives learn from the GAO's high-risk list? What have agencies done over the years to get their programs off the list? 
How can programs stay off the list in the first place? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Dr. Don Kettle, author of the IBM Center Report, Managing Risk, Improving Results, Lessons for Improving Government Management from GAO's High-Risk List. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Kevin McAleenan, Deputy Commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Also joining my conversation from IBM is Don Finhagen. So to, to, to promote organizational efficiencies, last fall the CBP Commissioner announced realignment of the agency's headquarters structure to better support our personnel in fulfilling CBP's critical mission. How has this reorg helped transform CBP? What, what do you see the benefits from this uh, reorganization, and what challenges are you working to address? I, I think our realignment presents a, a great opportunity uh, to, to become more efficient and effective uh, across our organizational management. Uh, uh, students of organizational management might be shocked to learn that uh, before this realignment became effective uh, w- with uh, on June 15th um, of this year, uh, the deputy commissioner and the commissioner together shared about 22 direct reports. Um, a, a very broad span of control uh, to include uh, components with 28,000 people down to components with 10, uh, a, a all performing different uh, responsibilities within CBP. And, and what that does is it creates a situation where the, 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 there's a, a dilution of, of management focus and time where, where our, our leaders aren't getting the, the feedback and support that they necessarily needed or, or deserved. Um, and, and where the span of control was, was simply uh, not fully manageable. Uh, so we had to address that. That was, that was a fundamental principle. But, but just reorganizing the chart and, and making it not 22 but six uh, direct reports uh, now to the deputy commissioner um, you know, wasn't going to achieve organizational benefits uh, alone. Uh, so the, the second key principle of the realignment was, was really recognizing what we do. And, and and how we all need to align to support it. And, and those are the four operating components, the U.S. Border Patrol, the Office of Field Operations, Air and Marine, and the Office of International Trade. Um, they, they are... They were all assistant commissioners on the same par with with ten other peers at the time, uh, but but really we took a page from the FBI or or Immigration Customs Enforcement. We have a concept of executive assistant uh, directors, and in our case, assistant commissioners. Uh, and so we we've made it clear that those those four are are our responsibility. That that's what we're all doing. They they, they oversee the men and women in the field that are interacting with. Uh, travel and, uh, and travelers and, and the trade community that are interacting with folks crossing our border illegally, they're the ones we exist to support. So we did, we, did, we aligned two other uh, functions. We, we took our intelligence, our international affairs, our diplomatic arm, uh, and, and the operational reporting, uh, the operational requirements development, modeling and simulation, all the things that are, that are really operationally focused that support those four main operators and brought them together in an Office of Operations Support. Uh, led by an executive assistant commissioner, and I'm I'm very excited for the potential for this group to provide ex, ex, you know added value to our operators uh, across those functions. Uh, and we put a very senior leader uh, in charge, former uh, deputy chief of the border patrol, uh, Ron Vitello, is going to lead that section. Uh, we then organized our what we're calling our enterprise services, all of the mission support functions, uh, from the chief financial officer to the chief information officer 
chief human capital officer, chief training officer, and, and of course, the chief acquisition executive. Uh, we wanted one uh, organizing executive to, to be responsible for providing integrated business solutions to the operational elements. Uh, so that that if our, our office of border patrol has a has a complex uh, need for a, uh, a new technology and, and the training to go along with it, they have one integrated place to go to get a comprehensive solution. They don't have to say, okay, you're you're going to buy me the technology, and okay, I'll go over here to train it. Oh, and by the way, I have to ask for the money from a third place. Uh, it, it's it's a it's a single uh, enterprise services component uh, that that comes to work every day with the sole focus of doing what those four operators need. Uh, and so I, I think uh, if we get this right, uh, and it's, it's early, uh, and we've created some, some governance mechanisms to, to deepen that integration, because it's one thing to structure it, it's another thing to make sure they're talking and, and working for one another the way we expect. Uh, but, but I think it's going to increase our leadership time. Uh, to, to manage our, our core priorities, uh, it's it's going to to integrate services that are needed for the, by the operators, and it's going to provide better intelligence and international engagement uh, to our operational entities in a more integrated fashion. So I'm excited about it. Uh, I think it's pragmatic. Uh, it's it's not one of those changes that's so dramatic. We didn't put everybody in the same uniform or break down every organizational chain of command we had. We. We built on our strengths, uh, and we try to enhance them. Well, you know, it's a great transition, building on your strengths and trying to enhance them. Regarding your hiring of frontline personnel, I mean, they're the strength, really. And Would you tell us more about your efforts to address some frontline challenges? But more importantly, Kevin, what are you doing to make the hiring process more efficient, more effective, and ensure that CBP is attracting the right talent? Well, I think f- most fundamentally, we, we had to make it faster. <laughs> Um, if, if you're asking uh, someone to consider a career with you uh, and it, it takes an average of over a year, uh, 400 plus days uh, to, to get an offer, uh, you're, you're going to lose your, your highest potential candidates. Uh, so uh, that, that was, that was our, our first commitment in the process. Our second commitment is, is we couldn't lower our standards. Um, the, the role at the border is one that requires such, such high capability and such high integrity uh, that we needed to, ma- to maintain our standards. Uh, we also, very, very importantly, by law and, and by choice, uh, we have a polygraph requirement for our frontline law enforcement officers. Uh, so uh, one of the challenges we face is that there simply are not enough human beings who are federally certified polygraphers uh, to maintain a 45,000-person workforce and increase hiring uh, at the same time. Uh, so we've had to, to generate and train some new polygraphers uh, to, to, to just keep up with that, that load. Uh, so so that, that's been a fundamental effort. Uh, secondly, we have these important steps in the process uh, and they were all done sequentially, uh, and, and we would have a time gap between each step. Uh, so what we've done is move toward a concept of hiring hubs, uh, borrowing from the private sector. And, and instead of, of, of sequentially managing uh, the, the testing and the interview and the polygraph, we try to bring five or six steps together in a concerted two- or three-day process and get as many people through uh, the pipeline as, as we can. Uh, and, and then we're much more responsive on the timeline. Our hiring, uh, time to hire has gone from over 400 days to 169. 
which is much more consistent with a person's expectation of taking on a new career. And they can apply, you know, as they're, as they're uh, you know, leaving a previous job or as they're, they're coming out of an educational uh, institution. We have a lot of folks that have, have you know, college and, and advanced degrees uh, interested in, in, in a career at CVP. Uh, and, and we're also looking at working with Congress on creating incentives to some of the remote and challenging areas that, that uh, we need people to, to come. We don't have there aren't the communities there aren't large enough to support the enforcement presence we need. Uh, so we need to draw from from around this great country and, and incentivize and get them interested in, in spending a few years uh, in interesting parts of our country and, and helping secure our border. Uh, so, so really trying to incentivize uh, some of those hard uh, hard to fill locations. Uh, so, you know, without diminishing our commitment to that integrity, uh, we're, we're really trying to engineer a process that's much more responsive, much more efficient. Uh, simple things like uh, communicating via text, uh, as people tend to do. Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, sending them uh, email updates as opposed to nobody, nobody's going to wait six months for a letter. Uh, so we, we've been able to take those steps into the modern era as, as well and, and uh, our our human, chief human capital officer, Linda Jackson, is, I think, doing a tremendous job in, in pushing this this forward. Uh, but we're really, I think we're going to have to take a, a much more uh, aggressive approach on recruiting, uh, m- make it a, a, a not just a collateral duty, but a fundamental responsibility of our uniform components and our mission support components to get out there in the community to, to talk about the excitement of, of these jobs. Uh, I, was, I was talking with the uh, executive director of the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, and he was saying, you got to be kidding me. we got people who great, talented graduates uh, of, of colleges and universities in major cities that are just dying for jobs. Let me help you find them. And, and, and so we're, we're doing a lot of outreach to organizations that, uh, that, that have that reach across our country where uh, there are, are diverse and, and engaged populations ready to, to, to be part of a, a mission as compelling as CBP. So we're, we're going to go find them uh, with, our, with a revamped recruiting process uh, that, that feeds that improved uh, hiring process in an effective way. So what advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? I don't think there's a, a more compelling mission uh, in law enforcement uh, than, than securing uh, U.S. borders. And I don't think there's a more interesting time or place to do it. Uh, you know, people coming into a CBP career can 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 chart their own path. They they can work uh, in in forty five countries around the world. They they can uh, work in headquarters with cutting edge uh, data analytics. Uh, they can work in the intelligence profession. They they can ride a horse uh, or an ATV on our border. We 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 have such tremendous opportunity. We have one of the best law firms, I think, in government uh, in our chief counsel's office. We we have a tremendous group of of people doing great work. Uh, and they get to go home every day knowing they did something that matters. And uh, I, I think uh, that's maybe the most compelling reason to consider CBP. So I, I'd encourage them to look at, at CBP or the Department of Homeland Security more broadly as a great uh, career path uh, to, to, to develop them as professionals and to, to be very rewarding in the process. Well, Kevin, uh, once again, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule and joining us today. But more importantly, Don and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. It's great to have you back. And uh, folks have to understand, if with a leader like you, they might want to join up soon. Thanks so much. Uh, great to be here with you. Thanks for the time. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Kevin McAleenan, Deputy Commissioner of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. My co-host from IBM has been Don Fenhagen. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness 
for the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What can government executives learn from the GAO's high-risk list? What have agencies done over the years to get their programs off the list? How can programs stay off the list in the first place? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Dr. Don Kettle, author of the IBM Center Report, Managing Risk, Improving Results, Lessons for Improving Government Management from GAO's High-Risk List. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.